Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. I'm going to do a terrific show today, and I'm going to help people because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Oh, I'm going to do a terrific show, that's for sure. Buck Sexton here with you all. Happy uh, post-Thanksgiving. Great to be with you. That, that if you didn't know right away, and a lot of you are like, uh-huh, you knew, that was formerly, uh, well, I guess currently Senator Al Franken, formerly SNL's Al Franken character known as Stuart Smalley. Uh, one of the least funny of the recurring SNL bits of all time, which I should note is really saying something because there were some really really uh, garbage SNL segments over the years. But it was it was definitely one of them. Uh, somehow, I don't know, they thought it was funny. There was nothing really funny about it. But Franken's getting a lot of attention now. And it is because of his previous history, uh, back in the SNL days, in fact, of grabbing women. And he gave a press conference today. I, I can give you some of the the details of it, and I will. I should just note that what we have seen is that the the liberal switch when it comes to seriousness with regard to sexual harassment and sexual assault, the, the oh, we're going to confront the demons of Clinton past, right? Or we're going to confront the problems of modern feminism becoming a partisan instrument, really a partisan weapon to be used against Republicans and conservatives. And yes, believing Christians, uh, traditional Christians, that feminism would need to be reformed if it were really about women and empowerment. That didn't last. That whole, okay, the left is going to come clean on this stuff didn't last very long because instead of a focus on Roy Moore, the all-in media effort to uh, not just force Roy Moore out of the race, but also to uh, annihilate the reputation of anyone with the temerity to stand up for or even just question the allegations against Roy Moore, right? Any of that, and you could be in a whole bunch of trouble. Media was very, all of a sudden, you're seeing these articles, oh, we're going we're gonna to question our past with regard to Clinton, an accused rapist, an, an accused rapist, multiple, multiple women saying he sexually assaulted them, one saying he just, he just flatly raped her. And we have their names. They spoke on the record and the left maligned them, truly victim shamed them. And then they were saying, oh, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't have done that because a woman must a women must be believed. Women must be believed. And then then the left had to deal with, wait a second, there are some high profile Democrats, two very high profile Democrats, one in the House, Representative Conyers who Nancy Pelosi went on to say this weekend was an icon. We will get there. But more importantly to their political fortunes, although I think you could argue 
that Conyers, in terms of the Democrat Party brand, is more important. When it comes to votes and pure power politics, Franken and his Senate seat, a much bigger issue for the Democrats, uh, he came out today and, and gave the old, well, I'm really, really sorry, but I will suffer no consequences for this other than being ashamed and sorry. That's that was the sh- that was the short version of it. Uh, this has been uh, a shock and it's been extremely uh, humbling. I am embarrassed. I feel ashamed. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm I'm going to start my job. I'm going to go back to work. Uh, the kiss uh, at the rehearsal where we're rehearsing for a sketch. I said that I recall that differently from Leanne, but I feel that you have to respect, uh, you know, women's experience. To all of you, I just want to uh, again say I am sorry. I know there are no magic words that I can say uh, to regain your trust, and I know that's going to take time. Yeah, he's really sorry. I mean, he's not stepping down. But he's really sorry. And when asked, I should note whether there would be any further, because there are now several women who have come out and said that Franken did stuff that anybody could understand is crossing the line. I mean, putting aside even the photographic evidence of uh, sexually assaulting a woman when she is asleep. uh, Then there's also the grabbing of a woman's behind during a photo op. Um. That is not something that just happens or that, you know, a, a man in good faith could just find himself doing right. That's an abusive, egregious thing to do. And when asked, could there be more? Franken was like, well, you know, I'm I don't know. I can't I don't know. I can't remember. Maybe. So he, that, to me, that's a way of saying, oh, yeah, well, there were definitely more. It's just a question of will the you know do the women who were grabbed or groped just want to maintain their privacy? That's possible. And I don't want to speak out. Are they afraid of what the repercussions could be? That's certainly possible for coming out and and causing further problems for this uh, Democrat who, if you go back, I should note, and look at how Al Franken even won his seat in the first place. Everyone's just kind of forgotten this. But you want to talk about a stolen election. It's really a stolen Senate seat up in Minnesota. The way that they kept playing games with the vote count, and it was a razor thin margin for those who... Always say, oh, voter fraud, who cares? The difference between Franken winning and what was it, Norm Coleman, right? Wasn't that guy's name? I think it was, that was the, the Republican who's running there. Uh, the difference, I was going to say Norm McDonald, but that's the other SNL guy. Norm Coleman, I believe, was the other senator or would be senator in that state. And Franken won by hundreds of votes. It might have even been like a hundred votes. It was a tiny, a narrow margin. There was a lot of legal back and forth over what anyway just that's an important side note but it's something to keep in mind whenever we talk about the issue of uh, voter id or the uh, issue of voter fraud even small amounts of voter fraud can turn a statewide election which can which can turn national policy that's why voter id matters that's why the left is so opposed to it because they figure they'll always find some way to lie cheat and steal if they have to to win a seat as they have in the past Go read about Lyndon Johnson, if those of you who are curious about this. Lyndon Johnson was cheating all the time in elections. Guy became president, Democrat, big Democrat, gave us the great society. 
Without cheating, you probably don't have Lyndon Johnson. I'm just saying. And some of you are probably yelling about, you know, Kennedys, and there are some others that we could put in the, oh, yeah, cheating. That's how they won. But I digress. Uh, So, Franken, back on track here. Franken is not going to step down because accountability, you see, that's a Republican thing. One of the great weapons that the Democrats have used against Republicans for a very long time is at least their willingness to state that there are principles, that principles should we should aspire to adhere to them, that that they matter, that character matters. For Republicans, there is at least, if not an uh, observance of character matters, there is a willingness to defend it in, in, as, as a concept. There's at least a conceptual devotion to our people in office should have some degree of character. And some people will yell, oh, but, you know, with Trump, that's all gone out. of But it, it all depends on how you view character, doesn't it? Uh, nonetheless, there are exceptions. There are failures. There are people who do not have character on the Republican side. There are, but, but Republicans try. They try. Democrats are like, what wins? What works? What gets us the seats that we want? The, the goalposts are shifted. The standards go away. And that's why I know for a lot of you, all of this uh, current movement, and some are saying it is just any day now, it could turn into a hysteria because of the political power behind it. And I just can't imagine the Democrats won't try to weaponize the the moment in time here, people are saying it's a, a watershed moment. I, has, has it even? Can you even picture what a watershed looks like? Uh, does anyone even? What is a water? You know, a watershed is not some. We use this term all the time. You know, tipping point. There are other things we can say. A watershed moment. What is it? It separates one body of water from another. It's not a particularly illustrative phrase. Um, anyway, this is a a tipping point of sexual harassment and sexual assault, and that. This will no longer be tolerated. We have been here before as a society. Uh, we didn't have quite the same level of uh, complicity on the left and and silencing on the left that then came to light because the left didn't have in the 90s. The left didn't really have an alternative media to worry about. Although when you look at the whole Clinton phenomenon and the sexual assault and harassment era of the 90s, it really led to, and this is a part of the history that seems to be left out here, the rise of the Drudge Report, for example, which has been my homepage for, I don't know, going on 20 years now on most computers that I've owned, at least outside of work. Uh, the Drudge Report and some of the most influential uh, conservative authors, I mean, Ann Coulter obviously comes to mind. Her first book was about the Clinton Sexual harassment, sexual assault, uh, debacle. It's a great book, by the way. Uh, just putting that out there. Um, and you know, I think Anne's had like twelve New York Times bestsellers. You could probably argue that her best is her first. It was a great book. Uh, but it was just so outrageous, and the media was covering up for it. So we've been here before in terms of wait a second. There's a big national conversation about sexual harassment and sexual assault, and. The media is now suggesting that everything's going to change and that we're going to treat things that things will be treated differently. Now, keep in mind that sexual assaults already illegal everywhere and sexual harassment laws exist in workplaces. And 
I, I don't know what, you know, you get into this, okay, how does it change? It changes at a societal level, at a social level, uh, in terms of this is an issue of what, uh, social mores and manners. I'm talking about the much lesser stuff now, not the egregious sexual assaults and and, and some of the rapes from very prominent and connected people that have been described. But th- those are already illegal, right? So that's a question of just power and its abuse and the cover-up of it. And we'd like to think that we will overcome abuses of power, but what evidence is there to back that notion up just as, as a general concept? I, I, don't know if, I don't know what to point to with that other than right now, the victims have the ability to get the media to pay attention and there are consequences. Once that shifts, I'm not sure that we're in quite the same environment. So I don't know what really changes here, but put that aside for a moment. Nancy Pelosi just gave away the whole game over the weekend. Because when confronted on national TV with one from her own party, uh, Representative John Conyers, she didn't say right right away and you know all in that yes women need to be believed and this is unacceptable uh she she started she started all of a sudden putting out the double standards and the double speak and the hypocrisy and the nonsense because it's about democrats and al franken stood up there today and made sure everybody knew that yeah he's really sorry but he's not giving up his senate seat and this comes after how how many weeks of allegations alone should determine a Senate race in Alabama from the media. Whether you agree or disagree with that, that was the standard that they had set. Allegations alone are enough. Allegations alone for Conyers and Franken, and in Franken's case, admit it. It's not just allegations. That's not enough. Now, I know there's differences in severity between these allegations. I'm not going to pretend like these are all the same kinds of uh, misconduct and, and even criminal conduct, but the standard gets real murky when Democrats are all of a sudden the ones called to account. And I want to get into that and Nancy Pelosi and how, oh, wow, Pelosi just let us all know that this is still very much, despite all of their claims to the contrary, this is still very much a partisan issue for them and about power. We'll get into that. Stay with me. So Pelosi's on... What are the Sunday political shows? They're all the same to me. I mean, I, I don't... The one with Chuck Todd. Is that, is that Meet the Press? Okay. It's a boring show, but anyway. Uh, she, she's on, she's on Meet, the, Meet the Press. And she's being pressed on the issue of Representative Conyers, who's been in the Congress for like 100 years. I mean, the guy... I think he's longest serving, right? Longest serving member of the Congress. Been in the Congress, I think, since the, the 60s. And... I don't even know how many terms that is. I can't do the math. It's a lot of terms, though. And he is a a prominent member of the Congress. He's on the uh, House Judiciary Committee. I think he's the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, right? Right, right. We're going to get to the rest. So he resigns from the – he's chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. He resigns from it today. But over the weekend, when Pelosi is asked about Congressman Conyers, here is what she has to say. You said there's now a zero tolerance. Yes. John Conyers, what does that mean for him right yeah, now? Let's say in or out. we are strengthened by due process. Okay. Just because someone is accused 
You, and, and was it one accusation? Is it two? I think there has to be. John Conyers is an icon in our country. He has done a, gr- a great deal to protect women at Violence Against Women Act, which the left wing, right wing is now quoting me as praising him for his work on that, and he did great work on that. But the fact is, uh, as John reviews his case, which he knows, which I don't, I believe he will Why do. Don't you? I believe that well, he will. That excuse you me, don't. may I finish my sure, sentence? Sure. That he will do the right thing. But he got to hide his settlement. He got to yes, his accusers had to go through all, all sorts and of craziness. So why is he entitled to new due process well, I, in I, this case? No, I, 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 we are talking about what we have heard. I've asked the ethics committee to review that. Yeah. He has said he'd be open. He it will cooperate. Do you believe the Excuse me. Do you believe John Conyers is a I don't know who they are. Do you? They have not really come forward. And and that gets so you to don't know point. if you believe the accusations. What that's for the ethics committee to review. But I believe he understands what is at stake here and he will do the right thing. In one fell swoop there, my friends, Nancy Pelosi, the one and only, just annihilates any credibility that Democrats and the left have on this. Oh, no, now we're now we're serious. No more double standards, no more hypocrisy. No more making excuses. In that one clip, you heard it there. I mean, I I can walk you through some of the specifics of how and I will because it'll be entertaining for us but it's we know this is that was all posturing it was just what they were saying because it was good for them when they were saying it but now that it's a problem for their side now the democrats are the ones in the hot seat big problem they a few things here first of all and i'll take these in reverse order asked if she believes the accusers remember the accusers who at least in, in one case, clearly got serious settlement money and had a lot of specifics about what Conyers was doing. And, I, you know, I don't care who you are as a guy. If there are sexual harassment allegations against you and, and you did nothing and you, you did nothing and you're you're also not on the hook to, you know, the House legal counsel is going to be defending you. I think you defend it. I think you say, no, sorry. I don't think you go. I can't even repeat. And the media is hiding. It's really hard. I mean, BuzzFeed was the one that broke the story, although they were given the documents by Mike Cernovich, everybody. Hey, you know, credit where it's due. Ronan Farrow wrote a great piece on uh, on Weinstein. Credit where it's due. Ronan Farrow had the worst TV show on MSNBC's history since Alec Baldwin, but he wrote a great piece in on Weinstein. Credit where it's due. Cernovich got the docs about Conyers, gave them to BuzzFeed. They went with it. So, credit to Cernovich on that. Uh... And, and BuzzFeed for running with it, I guess. You know, taking a break from the cat videos. But uh, I have to I have to go piece by piece through through the Pelosi denial there. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, so we, we have to get it because it's... We need to establish this now since they've exposed what the truth is. So that, you know, next week when they're saying, oh, this Republican needs to resign, we can say, oh, wait, hold on a second. We've got the Pelosi standards now. Those are different. This is woman was was third in line for the presidency not long ago. I want to talk about the Pelosi standard for when somebody should face consequences. The Pelosi standard for when sexual uh, uh, sexual assault victims or sexual harassment victims are to be believed. 
We'll do that after the break. Stay with me. Unfortunately for time, I got to end it there. I appreciate you coming on. You mean we're not even going to talk about taxes? See, you have fallen into the place where they are doing something that's going to increase the debt enormously. It's going to be a job job killer, and it's going to raise taxes on the middle class. And that is has a big impact on the individual lives of all Americans. And really, we should be spending more time on that. Do you think this other issue isn't as serious? I think taxes? it's I think it's it's uh, enormous. Look, as a woman, right. mother of four daughters, I think it's enormously important. But I think that we have to have a balance in how we go forward, because but this is this I, I, is I struggle giving with this them, myself every day. This is giving them uh, uh, cover. There's so many okay. reasons that we should be concerned about the Republican majority in congress i mean nancy pelosi's incredible everybody that was the end of that interview i played some of before the the break on meet the press nancy pelosi's incredible in, in a bad way <laughs> right i mean first of all what is that that whole it's gonna she is just like a, a walking programmed robot of left-wing talking points it's it just you know uh, hurts middle class, kills jobs, bad for women, hurts middle class, kills jobs, bad for women. But, you know, Nancy, we're just asking if you want flat or, or sparkling water with your lunch. You know, I mean, it just it doesn't matter. She goes right into it. Yes, the Republicans, you know, they, they hate the middle class and they hate women. And they and you got to sit there and say to yourself, well, there's a lot of things. One. Whenever a Democrat now gets in trouble the focus should be on policy. And I have to say, this wasn't just Nancy Pelosi complaining. This was her calling out Chuck Todd because he's supposed to do the bidding of the Democrats on that show. And he knows it and she knows it. But Chuck Todd occasionally has little journalism urges, you know, because journalists right now, they're they're stuck between the virtue signaling of wanting to be a part of this movement of ending sexual harassment, which Sexual harassment is bad. It is not going to end. Hopefully it'll get a little better. It's not going to end. And I'm not even sure from a legislative or regulatory perspective what what could be done outside of Congress, which we'll get to, where they hide this stuff as a matter of of process. No surprise there. But for the rest of us, already a lot of laws against this stuff. I mean, that that Weinstein, for example, I know he's not a, not a politician, but that Weinstein was able to get away with rape for a long time or allegations of of rape uh, without any consequences was just a function of cowards in the media, cowards in the Democratic Party, and a complicit staff and little you know virtual army around him of of enablers and accessories to the fact after the fact or during the fact all of the above. That's what it wasn't. A, Weinstein didn't find some some loophole somewhere. Weinstein was just. A serial sex abuser and sex harasser who people were letting uh, get away with it because he was powerful. Oh, wait, who else was a serial sex abuser and sex harasser that people let it, let get away with it? Oh, that's right. Bill Clinton. Not new. This is not new. We have very much been here before. But, P- but Pelosi noticed that she wants to talk policy. And she's calling out Chuck Todd. Chuck Todd's feeling like, well, I want to be part of the righteous social justice movement right now that's calling out sexual harassment but pelosi's like hold on a second there chucky you're supposed to be playing for our team here and right now you got to know that more important to the democrat party that you run interference for conyers than you look like a, a big j journalist on the sexual harassment stuff so 
you know, Pelosi, that, that's not yeah, at the end of an interview like that. You, you don't do that unless you're a, unless you're a Democrat. Right. And Chuck Todd sits there and basically gets scolded. And it's like, you know, yeah, you know, I sometimes think about that, too. And it keeps me up late at night. And, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, you know, Pelosi, for thank you for telling me what to do. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, if, if I if I'm Chuck Todd, I'm getting paid seven figures, which, by the way, I say that and I want to vomit. I'm Chuck Todd. I'm getting paid seven figures to do some boring interview show on Sunday. And someone comes into my house and wants to wants to throw around the furniture and call me out. Just as a man, I'm going to be like, excuse me. But instead, you'll notice she she's like, you know, maybe next time actually focus on some real stuff, Chuck, and play for the team. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, Nancy. Please invite me to the next cocktail party. Uh, anyway, so I, I just picked that up. That's a little, little inside, uh, inside media think, but I've, I've seen it. I've seen it a hundred. I've seen it a thousand times. So there's that. All right. Now, but so she says focus on policy, but in the earlier clip that I played for you, she all of a sudden now doesn't want to believe the accusers. No big surprise there. All of a sudden now they're just allegations. Well, hold on a second. I thought with Roy Moore, it's just allegations. Conyers, it's just allegations. Oh, he's stepping down after how many decades in power? He's stepping down from his his seat on the uh, as chairman of the judiciary committee. But you know, he's keeping his he's keeping his uh, congressional seat. He's not he's not resigning. The guy's like eighty eight years old too. Uh, you know how, how much of a how much of a punishment would it really be for him at this point to say, you know what, I'm going to spend some time with the grandkids or something? I, I'm assuming he has grandkids. I don't know. I'm guessing he does. But yeah. Spend some time out on the boat fishing or whatever he wants to do, right? I mean, it's not the end of the world no matter what. But do you think there might be some consequences? Oh, no, it's just allegations. So do you believe women when they accuse? This is the Nancy, these are the Nancy Pelosi standards. I want us to be very clear on them. Do you believe sexual harassment accusers when they're accusing a Democrat? Ah, no, leave, leave it to the Congress. They'll figure it out. Should, should women be believed? Not if it's a Democrat. That's standard one. Do allegations alone merit punishment for the accused well not when it's a democrat only when it's a republican oh okay so we cleared that up and then also just if you're curious the violence against women act that's the old democrat trick this is the equivalent of weinstein saying i'm gonna go after the nra you know like that's my little my little coward voice right so it works for chuck todd works for weinstein uh you know what do you mean you're going to go off the NRA? You've been accused, Weinstein, of being a sexual predator. And that was before some of the worst stuff had even come out. But he knew that the old game was just be useful to the left and they will cover for you. Do the left's bidding and you don't have to have any character at all. In fact, you can be a person entirely lacking in character. You can be scum. You can be a bad person. But if you do the left's bidding, they, meaning the Democrat Party and the media or do I repeat myself, will have your back. They will cover for you. They will protect you. They will make sure you get book deals, get jobs, get whatever it is you need. That's the way they've been playing the game for a very long time. And going to the uh, Violence Against Women Act with Conyers, that was in it. And it, it, Biden had a, had a big role in this. There was a House version, I think, and a Senate version. And this is the Democrats because it seemed at the time politically favorable to them because they're always trying to separate women from men as an identity politics group because that's what Democrats do. But they wanted to make violence against women a, a, a federal crime under the auspices of 
now I'm getting really into, but, you know, Wickard v. Filburn and the interstate commerce clause. And they were saying that violence against women affects interstate commerce. So it becomes a federal issue. Violence against women is a terrible thing. One of the most awful things in our society. But it's not an issue for the federal government. It's illegal in all 50 states. Right. The same way that there's not a there's not a, a federal statute unless it involves the federal government. There's not like a federal law against murder because, you know, murder is a terrible crime. States all have laws against murder. You kill somebody in any state, unless you know you're defending yourself. Somebody, if you murder somebody, you're going to prison, right? You hurt a woman, you should go to prison too, and it's against the law. And depending on the severity of it, you can go to prison. And but the Violence Against Women Act wasn't even wasn't necessary, and was just the Democrats engaged in their usual uh, grandstanding. But more to the point here, it is because, as Pelosi said, Conyers is an icon that the laws the rule the rules i should say do not apply to him these new rules that we've just had established for us by the media about how the right the right to be believed for women and zero tolerance she even said zero tolerance well it's zero tolerance unless you're a democrat who's important to the party it's zero tolerance unless you're al franken it's zero tolerance unless you are representative conyers then it's whoa whoa hold on let's look at the totality of the circumstances it's very important that we that we spend some time on this today because I assure you Democrats will forget about this double, double standard that they have established today for two different people. When there's a Republican who's in trouble, certainly as we go forward into the Alabama Senate election, they're going to forget all about all this. Won't be applicable at all. Not in the least. They won't want to hear a thing about it. They won't want to hear a thing about it. You know, I think... You could make a strong argument, I'm just putting this out there, that the defining characteristic of the American left, the defining characteristic of the media today is hypocrisy, is a lack of principles that aren't transient, principles that are for more than just show. And Pelosi, in a sense, we owe Pelosi a debt of gratitude because she put words to what we knew was the truth anyway, which the Democrats are entirely unserious about coming to terms with Teddy Kennedy allowing a woman to drown in the backseat of his car when he was going out to establish an alibi. Entirely unserious about coming to grips with Bill Clinton's serial predations on women, including rape, and Hillary Clinton's complicity. You want to talk about complicit in covering it up. And and then also not really connecting the dots between Weinstein and the Democrat Party and some of these other very... These prominent celebrities, uh, overwhelmingly, that have gotten caught up in the revelations about their sexual abuse and sexual harassment, they're, they're royalty in the Democrat Party. They're giving money to Democrats. They're raising money for Democrats. They are of the left. But uh, Pelosi just wanted us all to be sure that we knew that there's no real standards that they're going to judge people by. It's, it's going to be on a case-by-case basis. And question number one is going to be how important to you, how important are you, the accused, to the left wing cause? And then after that, everything else follows. Well, if that's the standard for Conyers and Franken, if that's the standard for today, uh, that's going to be the standard going forward for conservatives as well. That's what's going to end up happening. They, they may they'll kick and scream and yell about it, but that's the truth. Um, anyway, what do you think about all this? Do, do you think that? If more accusers come out against Franken, you think he might step down? Then they might force him to? Conyers, nothing's going to It doesn't matter. This, nothing's going to happen beyond him stepping down from. But, but do you think that Franken may, may still. There seemed to be an opening there on that. 
just kind just kind of wondering. Uh, so we will we'll talk about the credit financial or consumer financial protection bureau uh, in the next hour. Some very interesting stuff going on there. Also uh, taxes. Here's my shorthand on where we should be on this on taxes. I've been saying all along I didn't think they'd get it done this year. I think I think I'm still confident, although it's probably a, it's a 50-50 proposition right now. But I want us all to apply a little bit of skepticism to this tax package. And I'll, I'll tell you why, but you're going to have to hang out with me through, uh, through this break. I'll be right back. So that was the ultimate statement from General Kelly, the importance. And I just want to thank you because you're very, very special people. You were here long before any of us were here. Although we have a representative in Congress who they say was here a long time ago. They call her Pocahontas. That was President Trump earlier today at a ceremony honoring Navajo code talkers uh, from the Second World War, who, who are heroes and very good, but uh, very violent, but very good movie, Wind Talkers. Uh, I think you'd put it probably in Nicolas Cage top 10, maybe even top five. Wind talkers about the Navajo code talkers that shows what they were doing and and uh, explains their story, true story, and that's why they're being honored today by the president and and by the White House and and for their service to America. Now they they are heroes, no no question about it, and uh, we thank them for their service. Now President Trump, being President Trump, cracked a joke about Elizabeth Warren who. People refer to as as both Pocahontas and Focahontas. And this got the media very upset. They are never going to pass up an opportunity to tell people or for their base, remind their base that Trump is a uh, you know, is vile and bigoted and all this, all that other stuff. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked about this today. And here is she. She was not having it at all. Uh, at the event that the president just did with the Navajo code talkers, he referred to Pocahontas being in the Senate. Why did he feel the need to say something that is uh, offensive to many people while honoring the Navajo code talkers, these genuine American I think heroes. what most people find offensive is uh, Senator Warren lying about her heritage to advance her career. Now, that's, that's, a th- that's throwing down right there. That is not backing off one bit from, from what Trump said. Let's, let's, all be, let's be honest here for a moment. In, in a cer- Look, I, I know it's Trump being Trump. In a ceremony to honor the, Na- the Navajo Code Talkers, I think there's. I think that it's fair to expect the commander in chief to approach that with a certain, uh, a certain solemnity. Now, I, Trump also, from what I from what I heard and and from all the analysis that I could bring to this, meant absolutely no disrespect whatsoever to the Code Talkers. He meant disrespect to Elizabeth Warren. So these are important things to separate out. Was it the time and the place? For that joke, I would say no. But was he disrespecting the Navajo Code Talkers in any in any way, shape, or form? Absolutely not. That was not his intention. I don't think that's what that's what happened there. Uh, and it does raise uh, it does raise the issue for the Democrat Party of I mean Elizabeth Warren is is somebody who's built a career on fraud. It's interesting as we'll be talking about in the next hour that she was the uh, she was so. 
important in the formation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, which has gotten in all kinds of crazy trouble, or not trouble, but all kinds of issues right now, because it's really there to to protect consumers from fraud. And Elizabeth Warren used the racial spoils system in our college admissions for her own purposes and built everything upon that were it not for her and and this is uh, this is you know, n- no offense to any state school but there are very few there are some there are very few state schools that you would go to as a to get your JD and then would get picked up by Harvard Law School to be a professor that is very hard to do Harvard Law professors make like 250 or 300 grand and they can't get fired it's a great gig. Very hard to get. Elizabeth Warren is, I believe, the only, uh, well, certainly she's the only member of the faculty with her credential uh, coming from a school that in the, I don't know how else to put this, all right? She didn't go to an elite law school, bottom line. But she teaches at probably the most elite law school. How did that happen? Fraud. She pretended to be something she wasn't and she abused the system. And then she she was able to parlay her time as a, you know this, she was able to parlay her time as a Harvard Law professor into then running for a Senate and everything else, right? But it's a big problem for the Democrats. It really is. Because Elizabeth Warren is not a feasible candidate if they're going to care at all about the person they have running being a person of integrity and character. Oh, but that's right. Democrats don't care about that stuff. So maybe they'll be fine with it. Um, I should note, real quick, just separately thinking about Native Americans, I saw the movie Wind River over the weekend. It is excellent. Highly recommend. Check it out. Very good film. We'll be back with more on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. A succession crisis at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Oh, me. Oh, my. What the heck is going on? It's the it's the kind of uh, bureaucratic situation that you would start to ask questions about, like, is this the swamp or is this the deep state? What exactly is is going on here? And here's what uh, here's what here's the, the long and the short of it. You have the CFPB which is supposed to be protecting people from unscrupulous business practice, protecting the consumer, the the common folk, protecting Main Street from Wall Street. It's the kind of institution where I'm sure a lot of politicians, when they talk about it, start saying folks a lot. You know, it's protecting the folks. It's all about protecting the folks. Main Street, the folks, middle class, a lot of that. Um, And what has it really done? That's an interesting question. We'll get into that in just a moment. But let, let me first start with what's going on right now. They have, as a part of Dodd-Frank, which I should note has dramatically helped very large banks to get oh so much larger and is anti-competitive in the cost that it imposes upon smaller businesses, right? So if you to... to uh, obey to be in line with Dodd-Frank if you are, you know, a, a major financial institution. If, you know, if you're Goldman Sachs, you, yeah, sure, whatever. We'll Dodd-Frank, whatever you want us to do. 
and and it might even be good for you because anybody who's trying to compete with any of Goldman Sachs's various business models is going to have to pick up that cost. And if they're not Goldman, that cost is going to hurt them a little bit more because Goldman's got a lot of cash. But on Dodd-Frank specifically, you also have the creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And it says in Dodd-Frank that the uh, director gets to pick the successor. This seems strange. And then also would conflict with the Vacancy Act, which or Vacancies Act, which allows the president or any federal agency or bureau to be the one who determines who the interim director would be. Now let's think about this for a second. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is part of the executive branch. You now have an executive branch official. I mean, this is crazy. You have an executive branch official who has showed up to work saying uh, that the president's pick does not count, that the president's Office of Management and Budget Director, Mick Mulvaney, is not, in fact, in charge. How does this happen? Uh, How is this the case? It is pretty astonishing, my friends, when you get into it. Uh, But this is what's this is what's happening. You had Mick Mulvaney down at down at uh, CFPB. Kind of a tough, I'm going to get that acronym wrong at some point. I'm not as good with the acronyms as I used to be back in my CIA days. Uh, But at CFPB, you had two people saying they're running the place. And you have Mulvaney in the mix here saying that, uh, well, here's what he had to say. The laws of the United States, uh, including the provisions of Dodd-Frank that uh, govern the CFPB. That being said, um, the way we go about it, the way we interpret it, the way we enforce it will be dramatically different uh, under the current administration than it was under the last. Anybody who thinks uh, that a Trump administration uh, CFPB would be the same as an Obama administration Trump uh, CFPB is simply being naive. Elections have consequences at every agency, and that includes the CFPB. You see, this is part of hashtag resistance. Federal employees, federal employees in some branches of the government, or it's rather federal employees in some agencies of the executive branch, think that they have a, a right. In fact, I'm sure many believe they have a duty to just openly oppose what President Trump is doing. This is crazy, but it is happening. I can tell some of you that I know of... Uh, shall we say, simmering policy revolts and even some behind-the-scenes undermining at places like the State Department. And I know of it not just from reading the newspapers. I hear things. I know things. I still have, uh, still have connectivity to what's going on in some parts of the government that is giving me quite a view into these things. That many in the press do not get. State is one place where there are some who are actively working against the president's agenda to the degree they can within the discretion of their office without running so far afoul of their obligation to, in fact, implement the administration's policies that they become obvious and have to be shown the door. Uh, but there are little quiet policy revolts underway right now in some of these places. And there's a big one, an open one, a loud, a messy, a noisy revolt at the Consumer Financial Protection 
Bureau, where you have a, uh, I'm trying to, uh, Ms., I believe her name is uh, English. Yes, that's right. And Ms. English, who is the chosen successor of Director Richard Cordray, uh, Leandra English, who is his chief of staff and longtime aide. Uh, Leandra English is the successor. So you have federal bureaucrats who think that they get to determine who is in charge of a federal regulatory agency now. I mean, this is just uh, appalling. And uh, Mick Mulvaney's right when he says this place needs a, needs a real house cleaning. Yeah, um, actually, I think you go back and you look at the line. I think it was it was a joke in a sick, sad kind of way, um, which is slightly different. But again, the sentiment is the same. Um, the reasons that I said that, the reasons that I still believe that this agency is flawed are things that I think people back home would agree with. Is that Look at it this way. And this is how I explain it to people here today. When I was in Congress, if you, if the CFPB did something to you back home that you did not like, Okay, there was literally nowhere for you to turn for redress. You could not call your senator. You could not call the congressman. In fact, you or the House of Representatives, you couldn't even call the president because the only reason the president could fire the director is for cause. It is a completely unaccountable agency, and I think that's wrong. I think that citizens should always have some ability to hold the bureaucracy accountable, and they can't here. And that's why I think we need structural and legislative change to the way this place is run. That being said, that's outside the bounds of the director to fix. This is a rogue elephant of the federal a federal government by design they they created this uh this stay behind federal agency if you will you know a- after the conflict is lost these are the this is like a, a the bureaucratic equivalent of a uh what was it I, I think it was in the second world war after the fall of i mean not not that i'm saying this is like nazism right but you had the the partisans of Nazi Germany, the you know the the werewolves who wanted to stay behind and still fight after the the Reich had fallen. I mean, this happens in lots of different places. This is the bureaucratic equivalent of you know a, a uh, not just a zombie agency. It is it is resurrected after the defeat, or or it endures forever. You can't get rid of it. You can't decide there's accountability. You can't shake things up and clean it out, or at least the Democrats are making it as hard as possible. This guy Richard Cordray was a recess appointment that Obama made that was one of Obama's most obvious and egregious constitutional abuses. And I know some of you are like, whoa, Buck, that's, that's, uh, let's not get crazy here. No, it's true. Cordray was the one that Obama put in place. Well, eventually the Senate moved on this, but initially Obama put him in place. The Senate was in recess. But Obama said, no, actually the Senate's not in recess, so I'm going to make the... Uh, or rather the Senate, sorry, the Senate said we are not in recess. And Obama said we they are in recess, so he's going to make the appointment. And there was a whole thing about whether the Senate gets to determine when they are or not in recess, or can Obama just say that holding pro forma sessions is a formality that does not count. Anyway, getting the long and short of it is that Obama abused the separation of powers and put this guy, Rob, Cord- uh, Rob Cordry, in place. Uh, not Sorry, Rob Cordry's the, um, he isn't he the... Uh, Guy from, not SNL, The Daily Show, Rob Cordry. No, no, what's this guy's name? It's a different Cordry. I'm forgetting his name. Gosh darn, gosh darn it, Buck. Get a get a grip, Sexton. Cordray. Oh, no, it's kind of close. Yeah, whatever. Point here being, 
that they set this up so that it would be unaccountable. And they set this up so that they're, yeah, I'm sorry, Richard, Richard, not Rob. Yeah, Rob Cordray's Daily Show. Richard Cordray. Uh, they set this up so there'd be no accountability and they can't get rid of him. And they didn't want to have this fight initially with the Democrats right when Trump came into office. So they kind of waited, but now they're having the fight later. And there's a great, there's some great stuff up on uh, nationalreview.com. I'll just put that out there for you. A lot of details that can be offered here about how CFPB, uh, I think, paid like $11 million in rent for an office building to a, a, an, a big Obama Democrat donor. You know, there's all kinds of shenanigans and, and carve outs and goodies and stuff going on here with the CFPB that is very troubling. And this is what I wanted to do, by the way. Um, Tyrone, what do you think? What do you think the ratio is of within the CFPB Democrats to Republicans in terms of political donations? I'm going to go with a seven to one. It is five hundred and ninety three to one. I mean, I ask because, I mean, this is a, it's a trap, Tyrone, but that's the point, right? Seven to one is honestly what I would have said. To, I would have said it's maybe, you know, 80, 20 or something like that. Washington Examiner has a piece. This agency of the federal government is supposed to protect consumers. There were 593 donations to Democrats in the last election cycle, one to a Republican. Does anybody think that that does not reflect itself in the way this institution conducts itself and the policies that it implements? And come on, right? We talk about draining the swamp. This is the CFPB is a is a deep and stinky and murky and methane gas filled part of the swamp, my friends. And so this is quite a fight the Trump administration has. But I just can't imagine. I mean, I can't, as somebody who used to work for the federal government, I'm just thinking about how, imagine if I showed up one day and there's like one guy who's like, I'm the CIA director. And someone else is like, no, I'm the CIA director. And they're sending out like dueling emails about, you know, who's in charge. It's like, what's that movie? Crimson Tide with... Uh, Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman, where it's like, who's really in charge of the submarine? Actually, a good movie. I think it's a Stephen King thing, by the way. It's kind of like that, right? It was like, which which CIA director would I listen to? The one the CIA picked or the one that... In that case, there's no... Because of the way that it's all set up, you wouldn't have that problem. But I'm just saying, I, if I showed up to work as a federal employee, it's like, are there little factions? Do people start wearing like different colored armbands or something, depending on which CFPB director they they go with? Well... We should, I mean, I'm sure they all hate Mulvaney, right? Because these are, who goes to work? You also got to think of it this way. Who goes to work for the CFPB? Progressive, social justice warrior Democrats. Obviously. Obviously. That's why you have 593 to 1, according to the Washington Examiner, given for Democrats over Republicans. So uh, we're going to get a congressman to weigh in on this one uh, in just a, a little bit here. But I, I want to talk to you about what I, th- what I see with the taxes coming up next. You'll notice I don't spend a ton of time on taxes. They love to talk about this on TV. I think mostly because it's it's a clear story to tell. You know, let's talk about taxes because it's an opportunity for everybody to kind of talk about the Trump agenda and, and get excited about it. And if we talk about it a lot and then it happens, it will look good for the administration. It'll be good for Republicans. OK, I, I'm, I get all that. I'm with all that. Fine. But I also try to keep it real. And I think that there's. Uh, this tax thing, first of all, I'm not sure it's going to get done, although I said it's 50 50. But is it going to be as good as they all tell us it is? I got an even better question for you. Is tax reform, as it will be passed by Republicans, 
without its giveaways and special favors and special interest uh, carve-outs? I don't think so. I think we should be, I think we should expect or we should approach tax reform as conservatives with a bit more skepticism. It's not to say I don't want it to happen. It's not to say I don't think it'll be good. I'm just saying let's not get all swept up in the in the big party here in the big parade like woo tax reform. I know a lot of you are already you're like dancing out you're dancing out of your seat like tax reform is gonna be amazing. Uh, but I will give you another side of this, a perhaps more skeptical look at the tax bill than you'll get from some other conservatives. Like look, Trump needs to get points on the board. I get it. And forget about Trump. Republican Congress needs to get points on the board, but doesn't mean we shouldn't look at it and say, hmm. So we'll do that right after this break. In the next hour, team, we will talk about the uh, massive terrorist attack that happened in the Sinai. Looks like the Islamic State was responsible for over 300 killed. I will give you a a buck brief on that. We'll also talk about a modern day slave auction going on in Libya. It's it's appalling stuff. Media is not spending much time at all on that. And uh, we will have uh, Representative Sean Duffy joining us shortly from the Congress to talk about Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and a little bit on uh, on taxes, where we go from there. And uh, also we'll fit in some talk, some quick talk about the NFL at the end of this hour. But I want it because, you know, you, you come to this shop for for honesty, my friends. I wanted to just point out that this tax thing is not necessarily it, it's it's going to be imperfect. Right. We are watching the. All those usual cliches apply about you don't want to see the sausage made of politics. That's all true. The Wall Street Journal has a piece to that effect. If the tax overhaul smells fishy, they write, it's probably the Samoan tuna plant. Uh, here is the beginning. While partisans squabble over whether the Republican tax overhaul in Congress benefits the middle class or the wealthy, Part of the proposed legislation is going over swimmingly in Pago Pago. The House plan, which would reinstate a tax break for a tuna cannery in American Samoa's capital city, could provide about $10 million a year to Starkist Company, the territory's largest private employer. But in addition to netting gains for Samoan tuna, lawmakers have festooned the 450-page House bill and its 515-page Senate counterpart with provisions including microbreweries, bicycle commuters, orange growers in Florida, volunteer firefighters in Maine, and a company that manufactures organic salad dressing, and I will put in there hopefully gluten-free. In broad terms, the legislation seeks to overhaul and streamline the U.S. tax code and make the American economy more competitive. In practice, however, it's the sort of ambitious, fast-moving policy train that gives individual lawmakers leverage. To win support for the bill, congressional leaders sometimes allow members to hitch their own parochial wagons for the ride. Ah, Yeah, everybody, that's right, pork. There's going to be some pork in this, and not the delicious smoked kind that I'm hoping all of you enjoyed either for breakfast or for your Thanksgiving feast over the weekend. Not This is not yummy pork. This is bad pork. It is swamp pork that is a part of this tax bill. It's happening. Now, maybe it'll be limited. Maybe it'll be pretty small in the grand scheme of things. But uh, 
It's discouraging. I would also note that, and I'm sure many of you picked up on this, it is discouraging that a bill to dramatically simplify the tax code is hundreds and hundreds of pages long. Why does it have to be so long? Brevity is the key to transparency when it comes to taxes. You know this. So why do we have to have all these additional pages? Why do we have to have all this other stuff? Well... I'm not, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying be careful. You know? I'm not saying don't have fun. I'm just saying be home by midnight and don't drink too much. I mean, I'm I'm just saying. It's I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit of a little, little bit of a I don't know, of a, of a warner. No, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm I'm trying to express my concerns here. Uh that we should we should be skeptical. Be skeptical of this tax bill. I don't want you to be disappointed when it comes out and you're like, "Wait a second. I'm not, I'm not keeping any more of my money, really, and corporations get a great gig, and what's with this Samoan tuna cannery stuff in there? Yeah, that's happening. No one said the swamp was going to get drained overnight, but let's, let's keep an eye out for additional puddles that are popping up here and there, because I see some puddles in this tax reform that they're talking about. All right, Sean Duffy joins us here from Congress in a few with me. All right, everybody, a lot going on in the world of politics, and you've got a, a big fight over the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that just coming in over the last few days. And then also uh, you've got the whole Republican agenda, which I want to get into. But to weigh in on both those uh, both those topics, we have Republican Congressman Sean Duffy with us now. He comes from the great state of Wisconsin. Congressman Duffy, great to have you, sir. Hey, Buck, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Hope you had a happy Thanksgiving and uh, and I come back ready and rested because you folks in Congress, you got a lot of work cut out for you. Listen, they were so happy. I think I put on about six to eight pounds. So it was a good it was a good Thanksgiving. That's what we like <laughs> to hear. But but if you would, before I, I get get into some of the specifics about what you think is is doable and where we stand right now, what, what the state of play is, so to speak, on some of the major legislative issues that are facing the Congress. Uh, what what's your take on what's going on with the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? We got two people running it, apparently. Right. So first of all, this is an agency that has been thrust into the limelight since the departure of Richard Cordray. But those of us on the Financial Service Committee in the House have been chasing this dog um, ever since it was created and stood up in 2011. So this, I mean, you got to think about this agency and how Democrats view the world. The agency was set up. Um, where it doesn't get appropriated, it doesn't get its money through Congress. They actually draw their cash from the Federal Reserve. So they don't answer it to us on money. Uh, they have a single director that can have a political agenda. So power isn't diversified uh, amongst the parties. And basically, they can run roughshod saying they're uh, implementing policies that help consumers. All the while, they're there to promote a certain ideological agenda, which frankly is a left-wing Elizabeth Warren-esque agenda. So that we now have Richard Cordray gone and Mick Mulvaney, who served on financial services with me as well and knows the agency incredibly well, we can start to rein it in. We want to protect consumers, Bob. That's a, that's a, that's a great uh, objective, but uh, this agency wasn't necessarily uh, protecting consumers. They were, again, promoting an agenda. What is, and I know you've, you've co-sponsored bipartisan legislation to reform the CFPB, uh, but what is this issue on? It is like a succession battle going on here with Cordray and then who gets to a point. And can you just explain to folks what that hubbub is about and, and who's right and who's not? 
So first of all, it goes to the power that was created in this agency. Um, there's language in Dodd-Frank that would indicate that the departing director can appoint their interim successor, which is absolutely outrageous. Um, where, you know, we have the, the Vacancies Act, where the actual president is able to appoint acting directors until he appoints a full-time director of an agency. Um, and so as you look at a power struggle between the president and an exiting director of a bureau, um, I, I think the courts are going to side with the president and Mick Mulvaney as the, the true uh, director of the CFPB. But again, it, 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 this, this underscores what Democrats were doing when they created this agency, which, which they tried to make it all powerful and removed from political checks and balances. And um, to your listeners, this was the brainchild of Elizabeth Warren. This was her vision uh, to, to make this agency um, and, and make it not accountable to, to the elected representatives of the people, which means it's not accountable to the American people. Congressman, it sounds a bit, and we're speaking to Congressman uh, Duffy of Wisconsin, it, it sounds a bit like this was a an agency created by, for, uh, and and under the under the auspices of social justice warriors, right? I mean it, that they create this this entity that can do all these things that Elizabeth Warren wants to do. Uh, it is by for and of the SJWs. They can replace themselves going forward. They can even try to override the president's ability to fill a vacancy. I mean, uh, is this whole CFPB thing even a good idea in the first place? So, listen, protecting consumers, Buck, is always a good thing. And when people are abused uh, by a financial institution, treated unfairly, we want to give them an outlet in the space to have, um, you know, some kind of ability to, to right the But you're wrong. Congress. Can't you but, guys just pass a law? I mean, you guys pass a lot of laws. Yeah, no, no we, we can't. And, and frankly, this agency w- was a consolidation of power that you had within the FDIC and the OCC and the Federal Reserve. I mean, other agencies had the ability to hold financial institutions accountable when they didn't protect consumers. All they've done is consolidated it here in the CFPB and made it incredibly powerful. And um, you've seen them advocate on behalf of the interests of the trial bar. Oh, surprise, surprise, right? But I mean, the, the liberals yeah. support the trial bar. Um, they don't even follow, they haven't even followed the law uh, themselves. This is getting into the weeds, but they weren't supposed to regulate auto loans. And they've, by way of banks who sell auto loans to banks, they're now regulating the kind of products that you can be offered when you go into a dealership to buy a car. Um, and they were claiming racism in loan rates. Well, the auto, the auto industry is so competitive. Um, you're getting the best rate by shopping from dealer to dealer. They did a total bogus study that tried to project racism on the auto lending industry. Did they also want to go after totally payday? They went after payday loans too, right? They went after payday loans. And, and the problem there is, listen, all payday loans aren't great, but if you don't have money to buy milk and you're only asked or to fix your car and you lose your job if you don't fix your car and no one's going to lend you money except the payday lender, you need to get people access to cash. It may not be the best um, the, the, the best rate, but if you can't get money, you lose your job, you're that much deeper in the hole. So they haven't really thought through kind of good policy and, and the situations that people find themselves in. Again, you're right, they're social justice warriors. And by the way, under the leadership of Richard Cordray, who is the exiting director, the claims of racism and sexism inside the bureau is they're outrageous. You look them up online and you'll you'll be shocked to find out what they were doing. Is it true, and, great- Congressman, is, is it true that the way that uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau currently works is that they can go after uh, some business and then the settlement money 
they distribute it to whomever they kind of want as victims? I mean, that that seems crazy to me. So what they did is um, they were able to structure settlements. So it, it, first of all, when, when you think of a settlement, the victims should be made whole. And if there's any money left over in the settlement, it, it should go to the federal coffers, which is for the American people. Well, what they did is they actually were peeling some of the settlement money off and directing it to their favorite liberal progressive group um, that, in essence, um, will help fund the left's politics. Um, and frankly, if you're going to send money to a liberal outside group, you have to appropriate that money through Congress. You can't let the CFPB appropriate money through settlements to their favorite liberal group. And that's exactly what they were doing. That's astonishing. All right, Congressman Duffy, I know you're a busy guy. Just just real quick before we let you go. Uh, is tax reform going to happen before we all go on our Christmas holiday? I'm bullish, Buck. I think it's going to happen. Uh, the, the, you know, the House passed our tax reform bill. The Senate, uh, they've been tweaking and modifying their bill. We're seeing more senators who had questions actually get on board. And so I think the Senate will pass their bill. Now, the question becomes, when we go to conference, which is the negotiation between the House bill and the Senate bill, can we get that done in a, in a week's period of time or 10 days period of time so we can get this actually done before Christmas? Do you have and any I big concerns we, or problems with the House bill as it stands right now? Yeah, listen, so we had some issues with this, the pass-throughs, the small, the, 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 the small business tax, and we knew there were problems with it. Um, and yet we're, we've, we've been continually tweaking it and modifying it. Um, and so it's improving. So, yeah, that's, that's been a problem, but it's getting better, and we're going to get it right by the time this bill gets to the House floor and the Senate floor to be sent to the president. So, but beyond that, this is a great bill. I mean, low, making America competitive again in a, a, this global competitive environment, letting middle-income people keep more of their salary, this is great for the American economy. And though liberals bash this, you will see this pop and grow our economy. People will have more opportunity for more jobs and better paying jobs. It's going to be excellent for the Republican Party because it's excellent for America. All right. Congressman Sean Duffy of Wisconsin, everybody. Congressman, thanks so much. Come back soon. Absolutely, Buck. Have a good one. You too. Well, you know, there you have it. The CFPB, you know, I I knew that was, it was the Obama administration that created this thing. I knew that was going to be, we all knew that was going to be a disaster, right? I wish everybody were a little bit more familiar. And when I say that, I just mean I wish there was greater coverage and attention put on how the Everyone always talks about the bank bailouts and the stim and the Obama trillion dollar stimulus. Like these were the one. One was about whether you believe it or not, trying to save or believe it was the right thing to do or not, trying to save the financial industry. The other was just, hey, the Obama administration wants to spend a trillion dollars of taxpayer money, and it was a grab bag for left wing special interests. I mean, it was, you know, they 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 burst Uncle Sam's pinata wide open on that one. There was there were cash and goodies on the left for all kinds of folks. All kinds of folks, and it just doesn't really get the uh, it doesn't get the amount of coverage certainly that it should have then, and and even today, I think the familiarity with what a a debacle that was should be. I wish it were a lot higher than than it is, but uh, CFPB, you gotta love it, man. You got a bureaucrat who's like, no, I'm gonna appoint my successor. Sorry, whatever, President. Who do you think who do you think you are, President Trump? I'm. The guy running the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which I should note, don't you you don't, you don't want to rely on a, uh, a a federal agency to involve itself out, outside of the legislative process of laws, right? Just to involve itself in determining uh, what what's good for you and what's not. 
Because that's really what ends up happening here. Once it leaves the realm of criminality, right? there's a very basic role that the state has to play with you know, enforcing contracts, right? If somebody, if you give somebody, you know, $200,000 for a house and they're like, sorry, not giving you the house now, the government has to step in and do something. But what the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau really does is you're going to give somebody $200,000 for a house and they're like, you know, do you really, is that house really a good buy for you? Do you want to, I mean, there's a simplification, but that's kind of what they do. Or they'll say, well, you know, that house that you bought willingly, you shouldn't have been allowed to buy that house because it's, you know, way more acreage than you need or something, right? I mean, that's, you have a lot of that going on. All right, team, I, we're going to, I went to an NFL game, so I want to talk to you just for a moment about that. Some NFL thoughts, you know, post-Thanksgiving chat, and then third hour, deep dive, national security, the huge terror attack in Egypt, also a slave auction, modern day, going on in Libya. Talk to you about that and much more. Stay with me. All right, everybody, so I want to take a little break here from all the politics and the national security and everything else going on to let you know that uh, I had my first NFL experience of uh, of this season just over the weekend on, on Sunday. Uh, Miss Molly's family very kindly invited me to a, a Jets game. Molly uh, very calmly and politely explained to me when I asked where the stadium was that, in fact, uh, the Giants, whom I am by family loyalty obligated to support, and the Jets play in the same stadium, which I will not lie, I was unaware of. So uh, my sports knowledge is, uh, let's just say I, I know more about like tennis and basketball and soccer because I played them than I do about football sometimes. Nonetheless, I went to a Jets game, wanted to share some thoughts. And of course, we're talking NFL. We've got Tyrone right here. Ty, did you go to any games or watch a lot of games over the weekend, over the Thanksgiving break? I did end up watching. This is by far the most football I've watched in a while, actually, this weekend, because I, I intentionally made myself not busy. So, so you, were, you were eating a lot of, of stuffing, cranberry sauce, and bronzino because you are not, in fact, a turkey eater. Right. So I was eating all that, so I did Wait, wait, wait. What's the choice? Moment. You're a pescatarian. What's the fish of choice? Uh, salmon is my favorite. Ah, okay. Salmon is my favorite. So I ate a lot of salmon, a lot of shrimp. I love shrimp. It was Molly hates shrimp, which is great because whenever we go out to eat together, if we're at like a, an event or whatever, I always eat all of her all of her shrimp because you know she literally thinks they're just. She's like, "Why do you eat that?" I'm like, "Because it's amazing. It's good. That's a nice perk." Yeah, no, it's not bad. We get a, we're a good team as a result. But so okay, so I I want to first of all best game of the weekend. Any any, any thoughts from you? I don't want to tell you what I saw at Jet Stadium, and you can let me know what you think. The best game was the Sunday night game. Ironically, the final game. The Green Bay Packers and the Steelers went down to the wire and a field goal as time expired. The Steelers won. So that was the best game top to bottom. There was only, but that wasn't even supposed to be a good game. The NFL schedule was weak this week. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't particularly exciting. And, and I just wanted to put out there uh, that the game that I saw, which was the Jets versus the Carolina Panthers. I mean, the first the first half or so was kind of like watching shuffleboard. I'm like, it was not a... And not a particularly strong product, which I know we've talked about how the NFL is not having a great year in terms of what's going on on the field. But even before I get to that, I just want to note that the opening of that game, because I was there for the whole open, I had to get there early because I was with the family and everything. Uh, there were more tributes to the troops, American flags, and more uh, patriotic Americana on display than any event I've seen short of the 4th of July. I mean, it was all in on that stuff. And I will say... The NFL, well, they were paid to do that. And all the teams, if you go to any football game, that's how they all are. All NFL, Every NFL game is like that. They're all like that. So that's why um, 
where people say automatically that the players, I'm saying collectively hate the truce, blah, blah, blah. I'm saying the kneelers are wrong, but the players don't. There's a lot of patriotism at these games. Yeah, there, I mean, I, about. It, it was, I mean, I'm just, this was as a viewer in the stands who was really having to watch the whole thing for everyone stood for the anthem and it, it was, it was a love fest for the troops. I mean, the opening of the game from, and I mean, from the players to the coaches to everything going on in the stadium. I mean, they were bringing out like National Guard people to shake their hands and they were doing, they were literally doing tributes to them. So it just was interesting because much of the narrative that we're always hearing is, you know, these four guys, Neil do whatever. I'm staying there. I'm like, this is, there's more pro America, pro troop stuff going on in this 30 minutes or so before this football game than at any sporting event of any kind I've ever been to. And most teams, I would say more than half the teams, always, when a troop comes home that lives in that city, they do the, the quote unquote surprise. The problem is they do it so often the family members kind of like looking around like, where's my husband? Where's my, you know, where's my dad? Because a troop comes home at halftime. Right, they do the surprise they return. Do it, yeah. They do it That's constantly cool. at NFL. So, so there were two, two stories over the weekend. I want to get your take on real quick here before we got to get into uh, some national security and a buck brief in the next hour. And that is, uh, one, what happened with, there's a coach. I, look, I really don't know about this, but there's a coach. Wait, actually hold off on that one. Somebody got into a fight. Why? There was a nasty fight. I saw it. It was because last season when these two teams played, the, the Raiders and the Broncos played, the, one of the, the, the defensive back on the other team snatched the wide receiver's chain. And the wide receiver took it and took a lot of flack on social media, in the locker room about, hey, you let a guy literally steal your chain. Sure enough, first quarter, the guy goes up and he snatches his chain again. And this time the guy couldn't have it. And Started fighting. It was kind of that simple. He I didn't realize it. it was that backstory. Yes, it was a backstory. So it was almost like once he got his chain snatched, he had to fight. Can't let somebody snatch your chain. Definitely not <laughs> twice, right? You can't. Steal my chain once, shame on you. Steal my chain twice, you know, shame on me. Um, but, uh, okay, so that's that story. And the fight, if people didn't see it, it was pretty, for an NFL, it was pretty extended. I mean, there were real swings being taken. It wasn't the usual, like, chest bumping to chest bumping. Um, but then, on a, on, a, on a more serious note, I saw this just sort of out of the side of my eye in social media. I wasn't really paying close attention, but there's some big problem with it ties into Penn State and a new coach somewhere. What's going on? So quickly, Tennessee hired Greg Schiano, who used to be Rutgers head coach, but used to be an assistant at Penn State. He signed a, basically a letter of intent to be their head coach. A Twitter mob lost their minds because someone testified previously during the Jerry Sandusky child uh, molestation Molestation, issue that Shiano knew about it and didn't say anything. There has been reporting that that dug into this and they can't find any proof that that's true. But that was enough to get him pushed out. And it's, it's really sad because I can only say, and I'm biased, I went to Rutgers, I've met the man, I've met his wife and his kids. He always came off to me like a Nice, upstanding guy. I don't think he's a great football coach, by the way. And if he was a great football coach, he probably would have survived. I will say, but he's not a good enough coach to overcome this unfair lynch mob that decided so, that. So in the greatness, in the greatness scandal matrix, he was a loser in this one because of the particular sensitivities right now about any, I mean, child molestation being the worst possible sex scandal, but anything like that at all, yeah. you're done. Right. And he went to the NFL. He, again, at Rutgers, he was a good coach, but he didn't win big. He went to the NFL and failed. And now he's an assistant coach at Ohio State. I think he would have been a solid hire, but he's not a home run hire, and that was enough for people to say, you know what, 
any dirt on this guy, we're going to kill him. But I just want to say for the record, it was very unfair. There's no proof that he knew about what Jerry Sandusky was doing. And this cost him millions of dollars. And it's going to be, and what's worse is, but there's on the other side, Tennessee, good luck hiring a coach now. Yeah. Because if you have other options, why go there? Twitter can get you fired before you even get hired. That's amazing. All right. Well, Ty, man, I was uh, interested to go see a game. Thank you for uh, shedding light on everything going on in the NFL and the world of sports. And we're going to come back in the next hour here, team, with a deep dive on the massive terrorist attack in Egypt, which did not get nearly enough media attention because the media was on vacation. And also, we'll talk about what's going on in Libya, a story you probably haven't heard there, and then some Team Buck speak, some Thanksgiving thoughts. We'll be right back. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. A horrific terrorist attack in the Sinai Peninsula region of Egypt killed 305 men, women, and children on Friday. The uh, worshipers at the Rawda Mosque uh, were trying to uh, escape by any means possible, but all means of egress, all exits, were blocked by a murderous group of a few dozen it seems ISIS, likely ISIS supporters, although the Islamic State has not yet officially claimed responsibility. Uh, Ansar Bait al-Makdis is the name of the jihadist hardline militia that operates in the Sinai region, and they have pledged their fealty to the Islamic State. There is also a newly um, a newly created created Al-Qaeda franchise in the Sinai Peninsula that is just getting going as well. So we're not yet clear on this on the specifics of which group is responsible, but we do know that this was the largest mass casualty attack in recent history in Egypt. Uh, you had 305 killed, hundreds more wounded, and There are more killed in this incident on November 24th than there were even on the October 31st, 2015 Russian Airbus disaster where ISIS brought down a full plane with an explosive device uh, coming out of Sharm al-Sheikh, which is a resort area of the Sinai Peninsula. So that killed 224 back in 2015. 300 were killed on November 24th. And... Here is how the attack uh, unfolded. You had a few dozen ISIS uh, supporting or Al-Qaeda supporting. It's really the same thing. Jihadists waving uh, the black flag of, of jihad outside of this, of this mosque, which was Sufi. Now, Sufis are a mystical sect of Islam. There are different kinds of, of, uh, of Sufis, and Sufis are considered by Islamic hardliners to be polytheists uh, through what is known as uh, takfir, which means someone is placed outside the Islamic faith. And there are those like ISIS and Al-Qaeda who will determine this for themselves. They are the takfiri. They will say that some are takfir uh, and they will kill fellow Muslims. 
And this has been going on for a long time. In fact, it's been a long-standing feud between the Islamic State and uh, and Al Qaeda as to whether Muslims. Remember, these are not. Uh, this is not uh, similar to the attacks on Yazidis who are non-Muslims, right? Who are outside of the Muslim faith entirely. Sufis are Muslim, but they just have uh, different practices and. Are there, but they are considered to be uh, kufar, non-believers, by hardliners like the Islamic State. Uh, so they gather outside of the Ravda Sufi Mosque and with machine guns and explosives just slaughtered everybody. Uh, they sealed off all the exits. There was no way out. And with automatic weapons, the Islamic State just, or I keep assuming that it's ISIS, these jihadists murdered Everybody that they could. People were crawling over bodies. It was a scene of absolute grotesque carnage. Hundreds of people killed. Uh, biggest attack in living memory in Egypt. And this, on the, I want to talk about this from the perspective of what it means for ISIS and then what's going on in Egypt or what it means for the global jihad. Uh, the Islamic State has lost territory in Iraq and Syria. It lost its capital in Raqqa. There are two obvious ways for ISIS, assuming that they are responsible uh, or that the group aligned with them is responsible. There are two obvious ways for ISIS to regain uh, international prominence. And that would be one through a, a concern that has to do more with terrorism in Europe and America generally, which is returning foreign fighters. People that had joined the Islamic State in Iraq, joined the Islamic State in Syria and have gone back to Europe and America. That's a major concern. But there are also these affiliates, whether Boko Haram in Nigeria, Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, uh, Al-Qaeda, I'm sorry, the Islamic State in Afghanistan or the Islamic State in the province of Khorasan and also in in the Sinai and Al-Shabaab in Somalia. You have all these different groups that are aligned with either ISIS or Al-Qaeda, which is a, a... a designation that has more to do with leadership and succession struggles inside of jihadist communities than it has to with a difference in ideology. There really isn't much of a difference in the ideology uh, between ISIS and al-Qaeda. Tactically, they differ, but ideologically, they're both pushing for the global jihad. But the affiliates of the Islamic State stepping up with a major mass casualty attack would be one way to regain a sense of prominence and to try and restore the narrative that the Islamic State is invincible and that it will eventually win. Remember, that was why you had tens of thousands of people of would-be Mujahideen flocking to the banner of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. This has now changed. They have taken losses, major battlefield losses that they cannot downplay or ignore. And therefore, their propaganda is also, ISIS propaganda is less effective. So... A major attack of any kind brings ISIS back into the conversation. Now, why would they attack Sufis, uh, which who, who are who are Muslims? Uh, they did this because these jihadist hard these jihadists. I keep saying jihadist hardliners. That's really repetitive, but they have a a uh, hardline interpretation of Islam that does not allow for any deviation. And in fact, they've also targeted Shia, as we see in Iraq, Shia Muslims who go back all the way to the seventh century as a branch of Islam. 
go back to the immediate environs of the Prophet uh, Muhammad and the succession struggle afterwards between uh, Ali and, uh, and Abu Bakr and all these. It was a dynastic fight that occurred once the uh, Prophet Muhammad died. And that then led to the schism between Sunni Islam and Shia Islam. The Islamic State will kill Shia Muslims as well for being non-believers, um, for being, uh, being Kufar. And they even will call them polytheists, which is usually a pejorative that is, um, is meant for people in South Asia, for example, who are Hindus because they say that they worship many gods, uh, hardline Muslims say that polytheists are, well, they, I mean, they are polytheists, right? But that's a terrible insult from the perspective of jihadists. Polytheists are not people of the book. They're not Christians. They're not Jews. And so, therefore, they can just be exterminated at will. With, that's the belief within jihadist circles. So they want to reestablish there, these jihadists, through their massive uh, bloodbath. They want to reestablish their prominence on the world stage and also show that they are true believers and that they are absolutely dedicated to the cause and that anybody who is a uh, deviates from their version of Islam is subject to being killed. There's also a more specific component of this that has to do with Egypt, uh, which is that Egypt, the, the one of the first and really the most important state that was most important state from U.S. interests uh, that was directly affected by the Arab Spring is still in a precarious uh, position when it comes to its politics. You have al-Sisi, who is liked by the West, liked in America, um, who is also trying to do his best to suppress the radicals in his midst. But he came to power after an anti-Muslim Brotherhood coup, right? Muslim Brotherhood won elections and then where they were tossed out by uh, al-Sisi, who was a military guy. Yes, there are some very clear similarities that people draw between al-Sisi's situation as the president of Egypt now and the Mubarak situation, who was the despot, the strong man in charge of Egypt, but very friendly relations with the U.S. for years and years, who was deposed as part of the Arab Spring. Well... The uh, situation with al-Sisi is that there are elections coming up. Uh, there's supposed to be elections next year. And there's not a lot that al-Sisi can point to that has been great for Egypt other than the Muslim Brotherhood's not in charge, right? Which we, we certainly think is a great thing. But there's been a, a lot of terrorism in recent years, particularly in the Sinai region. And so when we talk about the destabilizing acts of terrorists like the Islamic State or an al-Qaeda affiliate or any number of different groups in Egypt, it is to show the people of Egypt that see this autocrat al-Sisi can't make you safe. The bargain of trading your democracy for this. Remember, this is the line from the Islamic hardliners uh, and the Muslim Brotherhood still has some pretty serious support in many circles in Egypt. Uh, but the bargain of your vote for secure or your democracy for your security is not even one that is being upheld by LCC. Maybe you should try the Muslim Brotherhood again. And oh, by the way, maybe the Muslim Brotherhood will be way more favorable toward these uh, jihadist entities in the Sinai. I know people say, oh, the Muslim Brotherhoods renounce violence. Yeah, for now. Um, and not really. And that's a whole separate conversation. But 
the uh, the political situation in Egypt is fragile. And keep in mind that the Islamic State, the global jihad, they want another front for jihad. Now that Syria is is on the decline for them as a major jihadist battleground, they're looking for another one. And if they could destabilize Egypt and set off a a, a civil war with the Sinai as a kind of rear guard uh, area for them and a base of operations, but engaging in mass casualty attacks in Egypt proper, the Islamic State, that's a strategy they would love to implement, and we have to do everything we can to counter it. Right, we're going to come back and talk about Libya here in just a second and a modern-day slave market that's operating there. It's, it's uh, appalling stuff. Stay with me. So, I mean, that is the land of unconfirmed videos. We came, we saw, he died. <laughs> did it have anything to do with your visit? No, I'm sure it did. That was Hillary Clinton not long ago when she was Secretary of State. You could say she was asking or answering the question, what happened in Libya? Well, <laughs> now, unfortunately, we can turn our sights to what really happened in Libya. It's something that's fallen off of the radar of Many folks out there in the foreign policy establishment, media doesn't really want to touch it, and there are some reasons for that, which we will get into now. Glenn Reynolds joins us to talk about it. He is a University of Tennessee law professor and the author of The New School, How the Information Age Will Save American Education from Itself. He also has a piece out, and this is in USA Today, Africans are being sold as slaves in Libya. Thanks, Hillary Clinton. Glenn, great to have you on. Hi, great to be here. Okay, so Hillary at the time, victory laps, no surprise, Obama administration, they broke it without buying it, so to speak, in Libya. They ousted Gaddafi. We're starting to see more and more of what the end results are of this, and it is not good, Glenn. You talked about it in your piece. Yeah, no, it's a debacle. And, you know, uh, what set me off on this was uh, I noticed last week two things were going on. On Twitter, all the sort of foreign policy pundits that you see there all the time we're going on about how clueless Donald Trump was and what a disaster Rex Tillerson was and how terrible U.S. foreign policy has become. And at the same time, there was a big story about how literally black Africans were being sold in Libyan slave markets. Uh, and I was like, it's weird that all you people who think Hillary was so great haven't noticed uh, all the debacle she's associated with. And this one in particular, actual black people being sold as actual slaves. You, you'd think that would be news. Uh, but no, it's not. And uh, and it's just really, I mean, there were a bunch of debacles. Uh, but this one is, is just sort of the biggest and the least necessary. I would also just note for folks listening that it, it wasn't often put in these terms, but in the Sudan, uh, before it split, and now you have a new country of the South Sudan uh, the the storyline the media wasn't telling folks it was going on for years and years was that you had uh ethnically arab muslims from the north who were enslaving black christians and black animists in the south of sudan in large numbers human slavery was still going on years ago still goes on to this day but media didn't really want to talk about that story instead there were a lot of charity concerts about how to save the sudan and about darfur and george clooney showed up and and that was that. Here in Libya, though, Glenn, I think this is part of the foreign policy of the Obama administration that nobody to this day, on the left at least, really wants to delve into. Because when you add Libya and Syria, you have two enormous data points for massive mini failure when it comes to both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. 
Well, and you can add Yemen to that, which, uh, you know, Barack Obama was bragging about being sort of the centerpiece of his uh, anti-terror thing at one point. Now, it's it's another debacle, both from a strategic level and from a human rights level. Uh, but let's go to Libya first. So Libya was no prize. And, you know, Muammar Gaddafi was a lousy guy. And in the abstract, I certainly have no problem with removing him. But, you know, if you're going to remove a leader, you kind of should have some idea about what's going to come next. And certainly the Democrats, who spent years saying that Bush did that with Saddam Hussein and created a mess, uh, should have known better. Uh, but in fact, Hillary and uh, with, with her sidekick, Samantha Power and Su- Susan Rice, uh, uh, wanted to remove Muammar Gaddafi for reasons that were not 100 percent clear. Uh, it was a bad place. I mean, he was killing people, but he's done that for a long time. And lots of other countries have done that for a long time uh, without us intervening. Uh, but we did intervene with NATO. And some could could I just jump in really quickly uh, to say, Glenn, that also Gaddafi and Libya were trending toward the West at the time when they decided to get rid of them. Uh, at least somewhat. Yeah. And, you know, and, and we, not not that he was a good guy or a friend, but they, they were moving at post Bush administration because of the Bush administration. They were moving toward uh, being more cooperative with Europe and America. Still very bad guys, but. That's that's absolutely right. And of course, behind all of this is in 2003, the Bush administration negotiated a deal with Gaddafi, who at the time was scared because of what had happened to Saddam, uh, for him to give up all those weapons of mass destruction in exchange for a promise from the United States that we wouldn't try to depose him. So fast forward a mere eight years to 2011, uh, and all of a sudden, uh, we're deposing him. Uh, So we get rid of him. And weirdly, instead of becoming a nice place, Libya becomes an even worse place uh, and becomes an ISIS sanctuary and has multiple regional militias fighting each other. uh, And it's a big mess. And uh, that leads, among other things, to the Benghazi debacle, which is a whole separate story. Uh, But with Libya's breakdown into lawlessness and disorder, we get slave markets, uh, we get Libyan militias, uh, we get ISIS influence. Uh, and uh, it's just weird that this gets so little attention from any of the people who uh, certainly would be all over this if it were a Republican administration that was behind it. And I have to note that you know, if there was one thing that would be particularly difficult for the previous administration to do, it would be to point to a Mideast foreign policy success, uh, I think, and in all the areas where they, you know, one of the ways that they got away with mistakes that were made, or at least they're able to deflect from it, was to say, well, you know, we inherited Iraq. Afghanistan's not the Middle East, but we inherited Afghanistan from the Bush administration, so we got a bad deal. Libya is one of the few places you can point to where that was that was a choice by Obama and Hillary. I mean, that was really their move, their deal. It was a war of choice, and it was not congressionally authorized, uh, unlike you know Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever. There, there was never any congressional authorization for it at all. Uh, it is now coming around to bite us because uh, if you're Kim Jong-un and people are like, well, just give up your nuclear weapons. We promise we won't depose you. You're not going to believe that. Uh, once you break a promise like that, you're screwed for a generation. Nobody's going to trust you, and frankly, with good reason. If I were a dictator, I wouldn't trust us. Yeah, uh, that's fair enough. Glenn Reynolds, everybody, University of Tennessee law professor, also on the uh, USA Today board of contributors. He's got a piece. Africans are being sold as slaves in Libya. Thanks, Hillary Clinton. Thank you. Uh, Glenn, great to have you on. Man. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Uh, team, we'll be back with some Team Buck Speaks. Uh, stay with me. And uh, eight, if you want to call in, by the way, 844-900-2825-844. 
900 buck. Also, don't forget officialteambuck at gmail.com or facebook.com slash buck sexton. If you want to send us your thoughts on the show, it might even make it onto air. And you should be following that Facebook page if not already, facebook.com slash buck sexton. We'll be right back. Well, it was a great Thanksgiving break, but I, I got to say, I, I missed all of you and I miss doing this show. So I get excited to both uh, come back here and uh, get to share my thoughts with you and also let you share all of your thoughts with each other in a way here on the air with the segment that we call Team Buck Speaks, which we're going to create some cool bumping music for at some point or some some kind of uh, official intro for because because you are your thoughts and your comments and and poems and sonnets and limericks. They, they are worthy of of their own intro. And I would like to give them that. So we'll get to that. But first, let's get into what you have uh, written here to me. All right. This is from Chaz. Uh, he writes from New Mexico to say, uh, hey, Team Buck, just want to say that your Wednesday show was totally awesome. With the sharing of food tips and comments from callers, it was great, and it made my day. Shields high and clean forks, too. Well, thank you very much, Chaz. Appreciate it. I had a lot of fun with that show. You know, sometimes we do need to have a whole show where we really don't get too much into the news cycle and just talk about just talk about stuff, just talk about what's going on, talk about things. And certainly over the holidays, we'll have more opportunities for that. Sometimes it'll just be musings uh, on whatever on life and other times it'll be a bit of history or you know where does that come from or what does that mean two of my favorite questions i ask them all the time it's really in many ways the the basis for the show two questions where does that come from or what does that really mean uh so thank you so much Chaz. hope you had a great thanksgiving and enjoyed some delicious uh, delicious uh, culinary experiences which is just a weird way of saying food. I don't know why I just did that. Anyway, uh, Ty writes in with the following. I'm 13 and am obsessed with your show. I love your history deep dives. By the way, I have a friendly carpet shark. I'm looking for a small corgi, by the way. My squad's battle cry on war robots is Shields High. Shields High from Ty. Well, Ty, that's a great message, my man. Awesome to have a 13-year-old member of Team Buck. I guess you're a are you a millennial or pre-millennial at 13? I don't know, but I'm so glad you enjoy the show. And uh, I can tell you that we will have those history deep dives coming up in the podcast stream for this show in the new year, early on in 2018. So if you're not already, even if you listen live, you definitely want to subscribe to the podcast. iTunes is a great way to do it. Uh, you can also listen on the iHeart app. Uh, all right, here we go. Uh, Kelly writes in, love your show, Buck. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your staff, Amy and Ty. Shields high. Well, thank you, Kelly. Happy Thanksgiving to you two down in Alabama. Uh, John writes in with the following. He, he starts it with a bit of a preamble. I will share the preamble with you. Hair greater than Trump's. Defender of liberty. The man, Buck Sexton. I, I'll take it. Thank you. Uh, Trump's hair is definitely um, it is definitely unique. So I'm I'll take the Trump hair comparison. And look, you know, the guy still got quite a mane. I give him props for it. But here's what John in Texas writes in. Buck, I've been listening to you since right after you move off Saturdays. So I'm unfortunately not in the OSS. By the way, did you pick that initial because of its CIA connotations? Uh, the answer is yes. 
So OSS is original Saturday squad, but it's also the Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor in World War II to the CIA run by Wild Bill Donovan. And yeah, that was why we got into uh, some of that's why the OSS thing works so well. So original Saturday squad are just some of the folks who have been listening to me since before I had a national audience and a and hundred plus stations, right? So I very much appreciate it. But hey, if you just listen to me today, you're great too. I love all my listeners. I'm like, uh, you know, uh, it's like I love all my family, family members equally. I love all my listeners equally. But original Saturday squad, yes, indeed, because of the CIA connotation to OSS. Um, but you've quickly become one of my top two favorite conservative speakers. This is from John, along with Ben Shapiro. Well, that's uh, excellent company to be listed in. Uh, when you two are on together, the combined intelligence is almost too much to handle. I really appreciate it whenever you have him as a guest. Well, thank you, John. And I would just note that my my view of this, and it's not the view that every host has, um, I, I, I want the best people I can get on this show all the time as guests. I don't view other smart conservatives as people that I'm trying to hide or not give a platform to. I want the best conservatives joining in my show as often as they can. So that's not the approach some other hosts take, uh, but that's the approach that I take. So whether it's, uh, you know, Ben Shapiro, Guy Benson, uh, you, you know, you name it, any of the any of the, the top tier young conservatives out there, I want them on as often as I can get them. The only issue is they're very busy and they've got a lot of stuff going on. Um, but th- I'm glad you noticed that. And, yeah, Ben's a, a great guest. And the Daily Wires are a, a website that I have to say they've done a really good job. And uh, our friend Emily Zanotti's over there, too. So. I always wish them all the best. All right, but here we go. Sorry, John in Texas, you've given me a lot to work off of in your email. He writes, quote, if you're looking for historical deep dive material, I'd suggest something relating to the USSR. With your intel background and the increasing threat of socialism, I think many would benefit from a breakdown of the numerous failures of the Soviet Union from someone who knows what he's talking about. Lastly, when are you going to take the plunge and finally move to Texas? If you go somewhere like Dallas, you can even have your tall buildings and overpriced uh, foo-foo coffee. It'll just be like home, but with more freedom, shields high. And then he asks one more thing. P.S. Could you give a shout out to my army buddy, Officer Josh W. of the Dallas PD? I know he'll hear it because he's the guy who told me about your show. Well, yes, of course. Officer Josh W. Dallas PD. Thank you for keeping us safe and shields high. All right, now we get into uh, Rick, who writes in, Buck, as a former Real News viewer and OSS listener, you are my go-to guy on talk radio and have been for a long time. It pleases me to no end that Team Buck International Squad, something that used to be an infrequent but pleasant occasion, is now apparently the norm, as evidenced by the Charles de Gaulle anecdote. I'm not surprised by this, and it's well-deserved. Although I don't get to hear as many podcasts and shows as I used to, I was pleased to learn of the pending deep dive history segments as I've always completely enjoyed and learned a lot from them. The high watermark for me being the Battle of Lepanto, to which I have listened several times and continue to recommend to fellow history geeks. As Christmas and the New Year approach, I pray blessings upon you and your loved ones for the season and continued success in your second half decade on radio. All the best, my friend Rick. Well, Rick, that was a very kind email and you have... Uh, made my day so thank you so much and one more quick one here from louise who or louise louise i think um who writes in all caps allergies 
I recommend Zyrtec. I tried the desensitizing shots for a year and a half with no success. Zyrtec worked within 72 hours. I have many allergies, and Zyrtec is awesome. Okay, well, thank you, Luis. I'll see if I can get uh, Miss Molly to give that a shot. I don't know if she already takes Zyrtec sometimes. I mean, she's funny. She'll say, you know, I'm fine. I just love dogs. And I'll look at her neck, and she'll have hives all over her neck from the dog, like fur and licking her and stuff. Uh, but she she loves dogs so much that she just doesn't care, or at least she's you know she pre- she's pretends that there's no problem. You know, she's like a kid who wants to get right back on the bicycle after you know after she falls off and is like, my knee isn't bleeding. I don't need a band aid. You know, she just doesn't care. Um, but that's how she is with dogs. Anyway, uh, we'll get into some of this. I won't have time for the whole. This is quite a long email. Um, this from Chris. Buck, heard you talking about Meet the Parents, and you were of the opinion that this is Ben Stiller's finest work. I have been trying to convince others of this man's pure genius, and given our similar views on dogs, the constant letdown of live music, definitely true, and mediocrity of Matt Damon, perhaps you could help spread the word. If you have not recently watched Tropic Thunder, please do so. He should have won an award for Best Director for this film. Uh, Let me just stop the quote here for a second and say, Chris, I do like Tropic Thunder. It is a very funny movie. And it's certainly up there with the very best. Um, he also writes, P.S. Why does no one on conservative radio ever bring up Ayn Rand? This was a fascinating lady who lived an absolutely fascinating life. Her understanding of human psychology is second to none, but she is never mentioned. It seriously bothers me because the arsenal we need to combat collectivist ethics are basically outlined by her canon. It's weird. And then he's got another P.S. The Punisher was monumentally disappointing. Do we agree with this? Do we agree with this? Uh, no. Squad, Freedom Hut Squad in here says that it's it was okay. Well, a- Amy's abstaining, but Tyrone says, yeah, Amy, we'll, we'll, we'll get your opinion on this once you've seen it. But Tyrone says it was not bad. Uh, but I haven't seen it yet, so I can't weigh in. Uh, thank you for all that. On Ayn Rand, let me think on that one a little bit. Let me give that some thought. Why don't more conservatives talk about Ayn Rand? In fact, I know a fair amount of conservatives who kind of ridicule Ayn Rand, but have to put a pin in that because the show is closing out soon. I'll be back with some post-Thanksgiving thoughts. Stay right there. Okay, team, a little Thanksgiving recap. I got to share something with you because I'm all about honesty here in the Freedom Hut. And I'm not proud of this, but I'm going to put it out there anyway. Uh, I didn't execute my Thanksgiving sides to perfection. No, I know, I know. I talk a big game here about my scrambled eggs, which are amazing. And I've even been making some strides with the slow cooker. My uh, braised meats have become quite delicious in recent weeks. But I only had, you know, you only had one job, Sexton. You only had one job when it came to Thanksgiving, and it was Brussels sprouts. And I didn't completely mess it up. But I made a pretty rookie mistake. I made a somewhat elementary error. That is that I, I, well, here, let me tell you what happened first. So I love Brussels sprouts. And those of you who are anti-Brussels sprouts, probably because you grew up in an era when Brussels sprouts were boiled and often part of TV dinners and other frozen foods as the green side dish that nobody wanted to eat. But when they are charred and properly prepared, I'm telling you, They are fantastic. And if you're somebody who likes to eat paleo and you need your green cruciferous vegetables, there's only so much asparagus a man can eat before he he realizes that it can make some stuff smell funky 
and there's other stuff out there or, or a woman. I'm just saying, you know, speaking in the in the royal uh, sense of the term, not the royal you. I don't know what I'm saying. Anyway, the point here is that Brussels sprouts can be amazing. I went with it two ways because I had to do two batches and one batch I used some artisan uh, oil, olive oil that was infused with truffle because I was going full on frou-frou. I mean, I literally bought this from a hipster with ironic facial hair from a Brooklyn-based uh, oil, uh, olive oil producer. I mean, they obviously don't grow the That's where they make. That's where they press the stuff. I guess they call it a presser. I don't know. But I got it from a hipster in Brooklyn, and it was ex- expensive stuff. So I used it, and I had a little bit of the shaved Parmesan in there. And mwah, magnifique. Magnifique. It was, it was excellent. I, I cannot lie. It was quite tasty. And those Brussels came out very, very crispy because I used a, uh, a pan that one would generally use for meats, let, let them drain a little bit of the oil. Anyway, my mistake, though, was in the Brussels with the bacon and balsamic. Now, the bacon saved me, which is why you've always got to cook with bacon because as long as the bacon is cooked and it's in the dish, you'll be like, you know what? I could eat this. I mean, let's be honest, everybody. If I sliced up some thick, thick cut bacon for you and I put it in the oven and it was mixed in with some uh, some thumbtacks, rusty nails and uh, old uh, apple cores, you'd probably be like, I mean, not the best dish in the world. And my mouth is, you know, a little bit sore from eating this, but I can taste the bacon. So it's probably okay. So the bacon saved me, which you got to think of as like the bacon is the fail safe in the dish. But sure enough, I, uh, over, I I used balsamic and I didn't look, you can get a glaze in the store with your balsamic and you put it all over the Brussels and, and you look like a hero, but they add a little sugar into it. And it, it's a little bit like cheating. Now, when it comes to cooking, I'm generally in favor of cheating. If you can get something pre-sliced, go for it. Although knife skills in the kitchen is probably my favorite my favorite part of cooking. Well, actually, eating is my favorite part of cooking, but the knife skills aspect of it I like as well. But I was just, I was there, and I had, I had done my truffle and Parmesan, which I've stolen from French fries, right? People have truffle, Parmesan, French fries in fancy joints. They probably have them all over the place now, not even in, 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 in haughty pubs and in fancy frou-frou places. Oh, do you have your truffled Parmesan French fries? Or frites? as we like to call them, to separate ourselves from the hoi polloi. Uh, but it was in the balsamic that I made the mistake. I uh, got a little impatient. This is my problem with reduction sauces. I know everybody. It's like the terrorists win. Uh, my problem with, with reduction sauces is I get impatient and don't let them reduce fast enough. And this wasn't even really a sauce. It was just, you know, I was almost, it was almost like I was just cooking down a, I was just cooking down balsamic, and I cooked it a little too high, a little too fast, and it gave it a little bit of bitterness. And my family was too kind, supportive, and loving to go there and, and say anything, but I, I could tell. I could see there were some leftover Brussels on the plates. Not the, no, no, not the truffle oil and Parmesan. That was to perfection. But my batch of bacon and balsamic, I mean, the bacon bailed me out, but I also feel like I, I kind of profaned the bacon by pouring some uh, burned balsamic oil on it. I was very disappointed in myself. Other than that, my Thanksgiving was fantastic. I was with 
my uh, my my folks, and then I went made a kind of a late dessert stop with Miss Molly and, and her whole family. So I got to see it was great. It was like dogs everywhere. I got to see Tallulah, my parents' French white French bulldog, who is a little love bug. Although she's, my mom would get mad at me for saying this, she's not that little. She's a Frenchie that's in the thirty plus pound category, which is a little bit uh, a little bit big. I'm not gonna lie, it's a little big. But also my brother's rescue Pomeranian. I saw a photo of this little palm when they found him, and he looked like a little werewolf palm because he was in living in dumpsters and in the hallway, uh, not the hallway, in the alleyways of of Austin, Texas, and was filthy and had all kinds of you know parasites. And they got him to a shelter, cleaned him up, and now he is an adorable little fellow named Percy. My brother adopted him. And then I saw the dog that Molly's family adopted years ago. You know, she found that dog and another dog in a cardboard box with a young teenage boy selling them in Herald Square, New York City. And to let you know what kind of lady Miss Molly is, she used her first paycheck almost in full to buy these two puppies that she saw on the street because she wanted them to have a nice home. So anyway, I got to see Harold, the pit bull boxer mix. And and he really likes me now. We get along. He knows that I'm a, when it comes to, to pups, you know, I'm a great belly scratcher. You know, I don't know what to say. I've just, I've got a good belly scratch rhythm going on. And uh, he was, it was fun to see him too. So a lot of dogs, a lot of great food. My mother did a phenomenal job. I mean, my mom is so funny. She actually makes, this is mama sex and my mom, because, you know, that's the only, the only misses in the Sexton family so far. Um, my mom makes the best turkey and every year she gets a little concerned because you know it's a big endeavor we're all going to be eating that turkey and she just it's perfection year in and year out she makes and I don't here's the truth I don't even really like turkey my mom's turkey is perfect I ate it for three well including Thanksgiving three meals Uh, I had turkey as my main entree so anyway it was a great Thanksgiving I hope you and all of yours had a fantastic Thanksgiving as well. And I'm excited. We're going to the holidays together here. We're going to have a lot of fun shows coming up here, lots of history and stories, and we'll have some time to get away from the day-to-day politics together. So uh, do send me your thoughts. Please do download the show. Uh, And until tomorrow, my friends, Shields High.